0: Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, cancer and the microbiome.
1: Let's say we could monitor you from a saliva sample or a stool sample, and also from knowing your genetics, um, that you were in increased risk for colon cancer.
0: That would be good to know. In this week's episode, you'll hear from the scientist who is examining how our microbiome, the collection of trillions of microbes in and on our bodies, can affect the development of colon cancer. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt.
2: And I'm Amy Monomiro. This is our second part of a two-part mini-series on cancer prevention.
0: In our last episode, you heard from Timothy Rebick, who leads the new Zhu Family Center for Global Cancer Prevention at the Harvard Chan School. Rebick explained how many cancers can be prevented using already proven strategies. But he also outlined the importance of developing new strategies, both for prevention and for screening.
2: And this week, we're looking at an exciting frontier in cancer prevention and detection.
1: My name is Wendy Garrett. I'm a professor of immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard Chan School of
2: Public Health. That's Wendy Garrett. She's on the steering committee of the Zhu Center, and her fascinating research focuses on connections between our microbiome and colon cancer. The microbiome is a collection of trillions of microbes in and on our bodies. And Garrett and colleagues recently received a 20 million pound grant from Cancer Research UK to seek out ways to manipulate the microbiome to better prevent and treat colon cancer.
0: I spoke with Garrett about the connections between our microbiome and cancer and the exciting ways in which your research could change how we prevent, diagnose, and even treat cancer in the decades ahead. Take a listen. I-, I wanted to start broadly here because I think people listening to us have probably seen the term microbiome a lot in health stories they're reading. So for people, I mean, they might see that term, but they might be unfamiliar with it. Can you explain what, what is our microbiome? What are we talking about when we, when we use that term? So the, t- the term has become
1: more broad over time. So classically, that ohm part, microbiome, meant that you were really talking about the genomes, the DNAs, the transcriptomes, the RNAs of um, the microbiota. And the microbiota are the collection of organisms that, if we talk about the human microbiota, live with on and in our body surfaces. And within this vast collection of organisms um, include bacteria, Archaea, viruses, different kinds of parasites, fungi, a whole host of neat things. So by cellular count, um, now it's almost cliche, you are outnumbered by your non-human membership. Um, So that's basically in a nutshell what the microbiota or microbiome uh, is.
0: And I know you've spoken before about this idea that microbes kind of aren't our enemy, that I think people think like microbes, bacteria, bad, but... I mean, really, it's this interesting relationship that that we have with them. So how kind of are, like, what is that relationship between our bodies and the microbes within our bodies?
1: Sure. So the vast majority of the microbes that live within and on us are are harmless. Um, So some people use the word mutualism um, to describe uh, a very, it's a broad descriptor for kinds of relationships that uh, organisms have between each other. Uh, So they're net neutral relationships, they're relationships where one benefits more than the other, and vice versa. Uh, And then there are relationships that are sometimes problematic. Um, Some of those relationships exist within the microbiome. You can think of them as frenemies. Maybe in some settings it works really well, and in some settings it causes problems. Um, The medical term, if you will, or microbiological term would be opportunistic pathogens. But by and large, the microbes that live within and on us uh, coexist with us uh, peacefully. Uh, Many of them uh, contribute to our digestive processes and different aspects of our physiology, helping us generate vitamins that we need to live, like vitamin K type uh, vitamins that are useful for clotting so we don't bleed to death vitamin B type uh, style vitamins that are important as cofactors and a lot of uh, basic metabolic uh, processes that our body carries out all the time. And that's just one way. Uh, a lot of our microbes help us digest things that we don't have the enzymes to digest, like a lot of fibers or complex polysaccharides. Uh, so digestion is a big way in which our gut microbiota uh, contributes to our well-being. Um, they're getting food and we're getting food broken down, so in some cases it's win-win, depending on your perspective. Microbes, in some ways, uh, also contribute to this idea of something called colonization resistance. Um, It's a fancy term for an idea where maybe the microbes that live within and on us prevent or help us from uh, pathogens invaders uh, or incursions from foreign microbes that maybe we don't want because they can uh, make us sick. It's generally, I would say, a beneficial relationship for most healthy people, but not always.
0: What, what sparked your interest in, in studying in, in studying the microbiome? Like, where did that come from? How did that evolve over time for you?
1: I always thought things like bacteria and viruses uh, and fungi were really neat. I was one of those kids in middle school or maybe a little earlier that did science fair, and I had definitely petri dishes full of bread growing in the basement because I just thought that was super cool um, and I think there are a lot of us that as kids kind of found that whole um, tree of life interesting, microbes. Uh, that interest grew over time, uh, and I was really lucky to have fantastic uh, mentors uh, during my undergraduate and post, uh, and graduate education that thought the immune system and microbes were absolutely fascinating and brought a lot of energy and enthusiasm to their study. Uh, And I think one thing that I've learned is we can better understand how humans work and different parts of the human body work um, from studying microbes that aren't friendly to us, frankly pathogens, because they know how to manipulate the system. They know how to perturb processes because they want to live in an office. And so I think it's interesting to sort of study them to understand us better. Jorge Galán at Yale definitely inspired me in that regard in terms of that thinking. He is um, a world-renowned aficionado from Salmonella. So I think um, definitely uh, Jorge's mentorship uh, inspired me to think about the microbial world. And uh, it was a long time ago, but that interest grew and evolved over time into – me devoting my lab and uh, my postdoctoral studies to studying the microbiota. With a twist, though, um, I did clinical training and became very interested in cancer. I'm an oncologist and also inflammatory bowel disease, and I got interested in how the microbiota influenced susceptibility to those diseases.
0: And that was actually my my next question. At what point did you you kind of... um decide to focus on that and that, you know, that, the, that relationship with colon cancer, for example, like where did, where did that interest come from? Was there a particular moment as an oncologist when you realized, okay, there might be something going on here between the microbiome and, and colon cancer?
1: I probably didn't know the word microbiome yet, but in medical school, you see a lot of uh, patients with uh, cancer and uh, infectious complications, so suffering from infectious illnesses and diseases. So that sort of was the start of that, seeing that patient population. In fact, I briefly thought about, but was not brave enough, um, to becoming both an oncologist and an infectious disease doctor. And there are a lot of those people around here in Boston, which I think is very heroic and interesting. Uh, I found gastrointestinal malignancies really, really, really fascinating. And I think that sort of definitely pushed me over the edge into the microbiome world insofar as in the colon really there is this one cell layer thick of epithelium that um is very complicated of course but essentially separates us from this vast microbial world which is the inside of our gut Uh, and i found colon cancer fascinating i found mucosal immunity absolutely enthralling and i thought the microbiome and thinking about that triad of relationships uh was where I wanted to devote my intellectual energies at the bench uh, and sort of leapt into that as a postdoctoral fellow and continue to work on that in my research group.
0: So you use the term there mucosal immunity. So can you, can you explain what that is?
1: Sure, mucosal immunity or barrier immunity has to do with the specializations that our immune system has evolved to live at interfaces with the outside world. So one obvious barrier is our skin. Right, and there are really cool specializations within the skin immunity. Uh, another barrier surface is actually our gut. We think of it as internal to us. Um, our aerodigestive tract, so that would be our mouth, also our lungs, our respiratory tract, uh, our esophagus, our stomach, our small intestine, and our colon um, get a lot of environmental exposures through food, through breathing, and so those Really, um, outside-in or inside-out surfaces um, are a barrier too, and uh, classically, though studying those surfaces and the unique specializations of the immune systems that have happened of the immune system that have happened there, either termed mucosal immunology or more recently um, barrier immunity. The reproductive tract is included in that as well.
0: You and other scientists recently received this 20 million pound grant from Cancer Research UK to study how the microbiome affects the development of colon cancer. So so I think you touched a little bit on it there, but what do we know already about the links between our microbiome and colon cancer risk?
1: There have been fascinating associations in the literature, <clears throat> excuse me, for decades. And one of those associations, um, medical students learn, that if there is a specific blood infection or bacteremia with a specific kind of streptococcus, now called *Gallolyticus*, you're supposed to have this intellectual reflex to look for um, a malignancy or a premalignant lesion in the colon. And so that's been known for many, many, many decades. And over time, uh, scientists began to correlate uh, enrichments in the tissue or the stool between different single organisms and colon cancer. That's not causation, it's just seeing a lot of a particular microbe in a tissue. Um, so that's, those sorts of associations have popped up for many decades to just over the last decade. And uh, many of the individuals that have contributed to not only those associations, but understanding those associations from a causal perspective. How does microorganism X potentially contribute in some way to colon cancer are part of this Cancer Research UK Grand Challenge, uh, which is a very exciting, um, high-risk and high-reward proposal and granting entity to study all facets of the microbiome, the collection of organisms um, that are in some way linked to increased susceptibility or Maybe decrease susceptibility uh, to colon cancer that influence response to treatment as well as uh, toxicities associated with treatment. Uh, and so, the co PI, um, or my, my co PI? Uh, <laughs> sounds funny. With the Cancer Grand Challenge uh, grant that's focused on colon cancer and the microbiome is uh, Matthew Meyerson. We've collaborated for many, many years, and we've focused on a particular bug that em- that emerged from sequencing-based studies of the microbiome associated with colon tumors. And one bug that we're very interested in, or one microorganism, to be you know, more science-y, is Fusobacterium nucleatum. It's an organism that lives within the mouth of most healthy humans, if not all, but becomes enriched in colon tumors. Uh, and we've been very fortunate to study that and to delve into the mechanisms over the last nine or so years that underlie that association. Also, there are other bugs. It's not just Fusobacterium nucleatum that are associated with colon cancer. Um, there are really cool E. coli's. Um, e. coli's that express toxins that damage DNA. Uh, locally, Emily Bouskis um, in our department of chemical biology has studied colobactin and how directly that toxin damages DNA um i've been really fortunate to collaborate a little bit uh, with her and learn a tremendous amount about how that e coli works Um, and people have studied that e coli for a long time and then another member of this cancer research uk grand challenge microbiome award is cynthia sears at johns hopkins she's studied a bug called enterotoxigenic bacteroides fragilis i know it's a mouthful (laughs) and in both um mouse models and humans there's Uh, an association with uh, potentiation of colon cancer Uh, and she's done a lot of nice mechanistic work studying how um, that bacteria uh, works as well. Now beyond single organism, which mechanistic or reductionist scientists like to study in the lab, um, there are more complex ways that the microbiota interact. So these microbes exist in a network or community, talk to each other figuratively. Um, They co-metabolize and generate stuff. Mm. They kill each other. They (laughs) enable each other to live at different surfaces um, by changing the metabolic environment so it's more favorable in terms of oxygen levels and carbon or food sources. Um, So in many cases, it's perhaps overly simple to think about it as one organism contributing to a disease as complicated as colon cancer. It can be a variety of organisms over time or in combination that are potentiating tumorigenesis, uh, influencing a colon cancer to grow and spread in different ways. Um, And then the flip side of all this is a really hot area in science and tumor immunology and cancer immunology. And that area is um, born out of the idea that the configuration of microbes in someone's um, colon can influence how responsive they are to different cancer therapeutics, Mm -hmm. especially um, those uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that extends beyond colon cancer and sort of uh, applicable to many malignancies like melanoma, renal cell cancer, lung cancer, where those checkpoint inhibitors are used.
0: So I mean, you, talked, you just talked about the, the, the complexity, I think, of cancer itself, but also all these microorganisms. So I think when it, when it comes to, you know, for example, prevention for, for cancer risk, I mean, how does that complexity make the challenge of prevention so much more difficult?
1: I think one way it makes it difficult is that it informs sort of the need for special types of studies called prospective longitudinal studies. And that means um, that you need to involve populations of healthy people and follow them really closely over time. And unfortunately, within a large enough population, some of those individuals will develop pre-malignant lesions of the colon called adenomas, and some of those individuals over time uh, will develop colon cancers. And we need to understand that path, and that path from the uh, – microbiome perspective. And so we're very, very lucky at the school to have something now called the Harvard Chan Center for the Microbiome and Public Health. Um, and that center, uh, co-directed by Curtis Hutenhauer and myself, grew out of a grant called Biomass uh, that was funded by Massachusetts Life Sciences Center, uh, which is in, investing in the state of innovation within the Commonwealth. And through the aegis of that award, uh, and uh, along with uh, my co-PIs, which include um, Eric Rim, and Shelly Tu-Roger, who was formerly at the school, and Curtis Huttenhauer, and Andy Chan, uh, with the support of the Department of Nutrition, the Department of Biostatistics, and of course the support of the Department of Infectious and Immunology, the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases here at the Chan School, um, We began a collection from the Nurses' Health Study. I'm sure you've heard about that amazing cohort of very dedicated health professionals that have been followed for decades and filled out surveys and generally provided um, lots of their health and lifestyle information and also samples. Mm -hmm. And what this wonderful series of cohorts is now providing is a stool sample uh, through this biomass grant that's Mm -hmm. funded by MLSC. And this study, um, with time and with funding, we're really um, looking for funding for this effort, um, will enable us to begin to ask those critical to prevention questions about prospective longitudinal studies around the microbiome in colon cancer and and really when you're looking at a population of 30,000 plus individuals, um, we can look at many things beyond beyond colon cancer. We can look at a whole host of malignancies if you're interested in breast cancer or lung cancer. We can look at neurological diseases like Parkinson's disease. Um, But really, I think for prevention studies in the microbiome, you need that idea of a large population scale study. So not one people, although person that's great, not 10, not 100, but tens of thousands, that kind of scale. So there's this, this great quote that I absolutely love. It's from the Canary Foundation, and I think also it appears in a publication from a meeting hosted by um, the National Cancer Institute at the National Institute of Health, and that is for every $1 spent on prevention, there are about $1,000 spent on late-stage treatment per individual. Mm -hmm. And so the time is really near for us to make uh, investment in this idea of prevention for cancer. And I think the microbiome is a really exciting place for us to put a nickel down or more, especially uh, regarding cancer.
0: It's so funny you mentioned that quote, because one of the questions i had wanted to ask you was actually something that I asked Tim, was that the recent Center symposium, Sanjay Gambier, made like a really similar point where he said, you know, early detection is the key to cancer survival, yet most of the healthcare industry's efforts are directed at later stages of the disease, at treatment. So, what you just talked about is kind of an effort in the right direction, but how can public health, whether it's pushing the healthcare industry, pushing other scientists, how do you shift that focus to invest in prevention to mean potentially save lives and, you know, also maybe reduce healthcare costs later on down the line?
1: I think it's a whole cultural shift in biomedical sciences and in medical education. And that shift is underway. Um, so the idea is, um, not only teaching medical students and maybe pre-med students and public health students, which I think are already uh, well aware of the issue, uh, about disease, uh, but also teaching about health and how to maintain health, um, and thinking about cultural barriers and socioeconomic barriers to engage in um, surveillance, Um, So, for colon cancer, and it's not perfect, but it's pretty awesome, we have colonoscopies. We have screening tests that are invasive, colonoscopy, and non-invasive, and the idea there is if we can catch a precancerous lesion, like an adenoma in the colon, we can stop that process, we can intercept, that's another big term in the Mm -hmm. prevention, biomedical sciences devoted to cancer field, we can intercept that cancer. Um, before it gets big, before it grows too much, before it spreads and becomes what we refer to as late stage disease. Um, So that's what's so exciting about the Zoo Family Center because it's a wonderful investment that's gonna enable uh, science here at the school around prevention and at Dana-Farber and across the Boston ecosystem and hopefully beyond it's gonna enable science, it's gonna enable education, it's gonna enable faculty recruitment, which touches on both, both the education access and the science, and it's gonna enable translational science mm-hmm. around cancer prevention. Uh, so I think it's, it's a very exciting time for cancer prevention, for population health, and for the microbiome, and it's, it's great to see sort of this confluence of all this positive energy that's definitely being channe- uh, channeled through the center.
0: Yeah, and I spoke to Tim a lot about the center and kind of the interdisciplinary nature of the center and what he's hoping to accomplish. And it seems interesting because I feel like the microbiome is a really kind of cool example of that. So can you talk a little bit? I mean, you mentioned, for example, you know, the work you're doing with Eric Graham, who's from Nutrition, and you, you, you're bringing all these kind of diverse groups together. So how, I guess, why is, the, why is microbiome research maybe such a good opportunity to do that, to bring kind of people with your perspective, but maybe people from population health sciences?
1: I think since microbiome sciences um, began to call itself that or became sort of inherently self-aware, it had uh, this realization that it cross-disciplinary was the way to go. You need computational biology. You need pipelines like cancer genomics um, to not only sequence the omic information related to the microbiome, uh, but to analyze it. Uh, You need biologists that know how to cultivate microbes. You need immunologists that know how to uh, interrogate the cellular immune response and how microbes interact with immune cells. Uh, You need cancer biologists and other disease modelers that think about the confluence of the immune system, microbes, um, and whatever disease system they're studying. You need people that think about translational models, be it preclinical models in mice or other rodents uh, or non-human primates, or that work with different iterations of cell culture, be it uh, traditional cell culture, be it organoids, which is a little bit more complex, um, or be it from um, patient-derived organoids, which is really exciting, which can exist in culture or actually in um, mouse models Mm -hmm. as well. So so many different um, ways of thinking, ways of solving problems scientifically are needed uh, to think about the data, to interrogate the data, to test hypotheses, and I was remiss in leaving out um, the population sciences aspect. We need epidemiologists, um, -We need people that think about biostatistics and ways to evaluate data in a rigorous way around uh, microbiome sciences. So the science has so many needs to be robust uh, to repeat, to identify real signals in the data. Uh, that it's inherently um, cross-disciplinary or transdisciplinary and, we're so fortunate here at the Chan School that we have that spectrum of people. We have the population health scientists. We have the epidemiologists, of which there are many different subtypes. Uh, <laughs> nutritional epidemiologists, infectious disease, epidemiologists, et cetera. We have the computational biologists. We have the biostatistics um, department here. And we have the experimental wet bench, um, folks here in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and Genetics and Complex Diseases and Environmental Health.
0: Do you, do you feel like you bring, I mean, you, you touched at the beginning that you're a physician scientist, that, you, that you, know, you're, you're, you have training as an oncologist. Do you feel like that gives you a potentially unique perspective in all of this as well, that you kind of have, you know, you, you yourself are cross-disciplinary in some way? Uh,
1: I think the physician scientist training track is uh, transformative. I think it's very important that uh, it be cultivated, it may be maintained um, throughout the pipeline, that we continue to recruit into that pipeline and we continue to uh, maintain that educational pipeline and we continue to nourish those careers after someone attains the degree. Uh, It's so wonderful to have. Um, the broad-based medical education and the postgraduate clinical training as well. Um, so that internship, that residency, that clinical fellowship, you learn so much about different things. And um, the science-based Ph.D. education is uh, wonderful as well because it enables you to delve deeply in a field, to think very rigorously about scientific questions, to learn the tools to um, test a hypothesis uh, and carry sort of – years of research within a PhD uh, to fruition and completion. So I think the two disciplines complement each other very well. But I did it, so I believe in it. And uh, I'm a little biased. Uh, Of course, there are people that don't do both degrees uh, and are highly successful scientists or highly successful physicians. And there are people that do both with one degree. Uh, But I'm a believer in the MD-PhD pathway uh, and um, careers that are enabled that any, that you can do both.
0: You, you you mentioned a few minutes ago, kind of this this kind of ultimate goal. I think of you know translational potential. So when it comes to the microbiome and colon cancer, I mean, what could that look like from the spectrum of? Prevention and screening all the way down the line to targeted, you know more targeted treatments or better treatments But what 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 might that look like in the future? It
1: looks like a lot. (laughs) So uh, Let's say we could monitor you from a saliva sample or a stool sample and also from knowing your genetics um, that you were in increased risk for colon cancer What if we knew that a certain configuration or a certain signal in your stool sample told us that you were at elevated risk? That would be good to know. We might think about lifestyle changes. We might think about treatments, which could be anything from a vaccine to uh, a collection of microbes maybe maybe that pushed out something bad um, to a specific diet. They're sort of a panoply of ideas that would prevent you, hopefully, uh, from developing colon cancer. And maybe you'd have, hopefully, enhanced surveillance too. So that would sort of be the prevention. Let's stop it um, by thinking about your microbiota and making changes in your lifestyle, your diet, and maybe give you something um, to target that microbe that's linked to increased risk and uh, and hopefully over time we have a better understanding understanding of what is it about that microbe that increases your risk is it making a toxin Uh, does it create an environment in your gut where other quote unquote good microbes whatever that means are pushed down or squashed down in their membership Uh, and how do we change that or do they make a sticky substance that enables them to stick to places where they shouldn't and if we could just block that interaction we could cast out that uh, potentially um, naughty microbe that's going to increase your risk your susceptibility risk or maybe we can give you something thinking on the flip side that um, is beneficial in some way that keeps oxygen levels down within your microbiota um, and keeps balance of whatever to be determined healthy microbes are versus um, less healthy and good microbes in terms of colon cancer risk.
0: So it's, it's interesting because like it's, it's not enough to say, okay, we know this microorganism is associated with this. Like, I mean, that's helpful, but what's more helpful is understanding the why, the mechanism.
1: I think so, because that gives us target, right? So um, if, we knew, if we know microbes make X or this collection of microbes make a metabolite Can we design a sponge that soaks up that pro-carcinogenic metabolite? Maybe, what can we do to increase the fortitude of your gut or your barrier function so we don't have to worry about that microbe getting to the layers of your gut that are below that first cellular layer? Um, And then, you know, we talked about prevention, but how can we think of the uh, the microbiota as a way to make therapies work better or be less toxic? A lot of folks think about that too, whether it's those, immuno-oncology um, therapeutics or more traditional chemotherapy or even radiation mm-hmm. um, and then if you are unfortunate enough to get a cancer how do we prevent it from coming back mm-hmm. if we treat you in a standard fashion how do we bring our knowledge of the microbiota to um, lower recurrence risk
0: I mean I think I think what I think what fascinates me is that I think you you mentioned this again that microbiome becomes this like umbrella term but it's it seems so infinitely complex. So how do you, as a scientist in your lab with the people you're working with, kind of, how do you choose where to start? Like, how, how do you identify, like these need to be our priorities?
2: Yeah,
1: so sometimes we uh, look at a human data set and we see a microbe that's enriched, let's say in a colon tumor, and there might be many that are enriched. And we would test in a preclinical model, uh, which of these microbes increases, let's say, cell proliferation, or a hallmark in cancer, some change in the immune system that's linked to cancer growth and spread, um, some change in the metabolism of a cell type that's linked to cancer. So we might look at a human data set and then uh, for hypothesis generating ideas and test those ideas in preclinical models. And you know, honestly, we might settle on one bug to study one model system that we use here at the school is notobiotics. So we can have um, animals, we tend we use mice here, that um, we use very special ways to raise them and pay a lot of attention to their husbandry. The food they get, the water they get, the air they breathe, and we can control what microbes live in them. We can also, just like conventional mice, um, design their immune system, we can design their genetics in terms of them harboring the mice, certain cancer predisposing mutations. And in the confluence of this controlling the microbes and controlling the genetics of the mouse, we can begin to hopefully improve our models and improve our understanding in terms of what's important to study with the microbiome uh, for cancer growth. So those sorts of model systems are very important. and where the hypothesis generation comes from can be starting with a model system or can be from gazing into a, a large human data set. So,
0: uh, I mean, we talked about, I think, so many different kind of, I think, opportunities here, really. So, I mean, what makes you most excited about the work you're doing? Is it a particular, you know, a particular path for prevention or is it just kind of the, the field in general? What What most excites you?
1: Oh, I think there are many, many, many exciting aspects of microbiome sciences. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a single bug, like uh, a Fusobacterium nucleotum species. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a kind of microorganism that we might think of as targeting um, bad actors in the microbiome that I can become entranced with. Sometimes it's a metabolite made by a microbe that I find that's uh, fascinating. Sometimes it's the ability to change or alter the genetics of a preclinical model or a microbe. So there are many, many, many different facets of the biology and the science intrinsics to studying the microbiota and cancer that I find thrilling and uh, dazzling, maybe some days a little overwhelming. Um, and what's so great about a lab and big collaborations like the Cancer Research UK Grand Challenge that's studying the cancer microbiome is uh, the number of people within a particular lab or within my lab that are studying different aspects of cancer in the microbiota uh, and also the collaborations so you can become involved in so many different projects that touch on the different science uh, and learn from your collaborators and hopefully in turn contribute to uh, helping and growing their science.
0: That was my conversation with Wendy Garrett about the microbiome and cancer. If you want to learn more about her work and that grant from Cancer Research UK we mentioned at the top of the episode, we'll have much more information on our website, hsph.me thisweekinhealth.
2: That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher.